Today we'll be going into John, um, focusing heavily on John 17 um, with some referencing of the preceding um, chapters of 15 and 16. And the reason why I thought this would be a good transition for us in going to, into Acts is that it seems that today, especially in, in the age of when so many people are saying that it seems our culture is getting worse and worse. And of course, from generation to generation, this is something that um, has been said. There's always going to be um, an acknowledgement of seeing just a condition of sin and the effects of sin in the world. But it does seem to be something that we're hearing more of because of, I guess, because of COVID and some political disturbances and uh, division that is going on in our country and throughout the world. And people are longing to see. They're longing to see hope. And I believe that as we go into the book of Acts, that what Jesus said about what is going to happen in John 14, 15, 16, and what he prays to happen in John 17 is some of the most hopeful passages for us. As we go into Acts, we can see that he has and he is accomplishing the very things that he promised and that it is actually the thing that we need to be looking to the most in finding hope in this age and in the age to come. So I ask you now to stand as I read John 17, the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed. And I pray that it will be a hope to you that you would know that the things that the Son of God prays for has and will continue to come to pass. This is a guarantee. You know, a lot of times we look for a guarantee in something when we're about to do something or buy something. We want to be guaranteed and assured. May this prayer for you that I can say with all confidence And I can't do this in many other areas of life, but I can tell you with 100% confidence that this is a guarantee that is certain beyond all other things. This prayer is true. Hear now the reading of God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you've gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. 
and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them have been lost except the son of destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also might be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me before the world does not know you. Oops. Sorry, I messed up there. Let me back up. To see the glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are only able to come here and to proclaim your name, to confess our sins, to trust in your forgiveness and rest, to even hear your word with faith because you have answered the prayer of your son. So Father, we ask that you would continue to do that now as we meditate upon your word. May it be that you would continue to manifest your glory through our repentance, through our faith, and through our obedience in following you by proclaiming your name to one another and to the world, by loving one another as you have loved us. 
as you have loved your son. Make this so, Father. According to the prayer that your son prayed, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. I am, uh, my biggest concern as I was preparing um, for this sermon is that it wouldn't be overly technical, um, even though it's so much um, relational in this in these passages, 17 and 16 and 15 and even 14. Um, but I wanted to create a, a, a bit of a, a structure or a diagram of the nature of what Jesus is proclaiming the church and the mission of the church will be like. So that as we go into the book of Acts and we see the Acts of the Apostles, which is the foundation of the New Testament church, which I heard uh, from my brother-in-law. He said it's probably more like the bar mitzvah of the church because God's church goes all the way back into Adam. But we have now a maturing of the church by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we have here in this particular chapter a powerful word, a powerful prayer and a powerful guarantee that the things that we see in Acts are, one, they are fruits of that prayer and prophecy that's inside of these words, but also a proclamation of hope and promise to us that this is going to be the continuation in and through his church, the things that he's praying, is right before you, right before your eyes. Now, we may not sense that when we probably never will until we come to the fullness of him that we will understand just what power the Lord is presenting before us even now that we are here and proclaiming his word that we're hearing his word and that it's actually having an effect in our lives that the prayer that Jesus prayed is being answered in live time right now before you But I think that we do not go here first, that it is easy for us to maybe just look at the book of Acts as history, um, to look at the book of Acts as something removed from us, when the book of Acts is foundational for us and is active and living now in and through his body, he is still doing the things that he secured by his death and his resurrection. So in a sense, this time of the year, we um, are, a lot of us are planning trips. You know, it's it's spring, we're outside. Um, This is, and I've kind of used this model before. You you know, this is a sad thing when you have one person preaching year after year. When you get to this time of the year, this is something that we often do. We start thinking, where where can we go? We want to go places. I wasn't really sure if the males were going to be here today. She was toying with me yesterday. They were, they were going to go to, on a trip to Sushi King. And I, I was both admin, admonishing and also envying her that they were going to go somewhere this weekend. There's something about this time of the year that we want to go on trips. Jennifer and I just got to go on our belated anniversary trip from last year to celebrate our 25th that you all helped fund, actually, and initiate for us. We finally got to go to Savannah last week. And um, it's kind of part one of, of, a, of a two-part 
trip that we're going to be doing, hopefully a cruise later on that stems from that. And it's just something in the air. And as uh, I mentioned in our announcements, the Peters are going on a family trip to Charleston. This is the time of the year that people start planning or already starting to cash in on their vacation time. And so this particular sermon is kind of like that preparation. And where are we going? And how are we going to get there? And what will it look like when we get there? And when are we going to get there? I'm not going to be able to answer all of those things in one packed sermon about what the church is going to be like or what the church is or what the church was when it first initiated. But there is that sense here because Jesus in these particular chapters leading up to the high priestly prayer is telling the disciples where they're going and what he is going to do and what it's going to start looking like when he brings the power of his church through the power of his spirit together in Revelation at the time of his ascension into the formation through Pentecost and then the formation of his church by the organization of his church and his body. So I wanted to go there first, look at what Jesus is going to say or what Jesus had said so that we can know where we're going and how we're going to get there and what will it look like when we get there. I don't want to go back and read a lot of these passages, but I do encourage you to go and read the rest of John 14 that was already started with you when Tim read this morning. Read John 15, read John 16. Because it sets the stage for this prayer. I want to go through the prayer again, kind of verse by verse. But I want to go back and just touch on a few highlights that we see in the preceding passages. Because it helps us understand what this particular prayer is all about. The thing that you will see in those chapters is that Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit. It is what fuels the church. It is the how we're going to get there. Now, Jesus' power through his death and resurrection and conquering over the world through conquering over sin is the centerpiece and potency of that power. But how that gets administered into the church is going to be through the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, starting with verse 15, it says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Here we have this already but not yet occurring even before the disciples as Jesus is saying, I am going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. But then he's turning around and saying, and he's already dwelling within you because you believe and you do trust my words. And so the work of the Holy Spirit is already manifesting itself in you as I'm promising you that I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. In many respects, that's the continuation of how the posture is for us as we hear Jesus' words. He is telling us what he is going to do as we know that he's already doing it right now. And Acts is very much that kind of posture for us. We're seeing what he did 
as we're seeing what he is doing and as we're looking forward to what he's going to do. Verse 18, it says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will not will see me no more, but you will see me because I live and you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. You have here things going on in Jesus' words that is going to tell you the nature of what it is like to be loved by God. What it is like to have God with us through the Holy Spirit. We're seeing that as Jesus is talking, he is constantly and continually talking about the unity of dwelling with the Father, dwelling with the Son. He is constantly talking about how everything that he is doing, he is pointing back to the glory of the Father. And that we see in this, there's this nature about the Trinity that it is constantly pointing to the glory of one another. Jesus is pointing to the glory of the Father. We will see here in his word that the Spirit is pointing to the glory of the Son. And then he is telling us that we already have the Spirit dwelling in us. He is going to continue to be manifested in us. And what we're going to be doing is the same thing that the Trinity is doing, the same thing that the Son is doing, the same thing that the Holy Spirit is doing. We're going to be pointing to the glory of the Son, the glory of the Father, and the glory of the Holy Spirit, which is why this song, song that was picked out by Scott and Liz this morning was a perfect way to begin. Glory be to the Father. Glory be to the Son. Glory be to the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, this is your eternal occupation. Now, those words may be difficult for us. So how do we glory? You know, how do we glorify God? What is that going to look like? Well, Jesus is constantly saying that those who keep his commandments will be those who are dwelling in his love. Now, he's not, again, I feel like I have to qualify this in every sermon sometimes because of the age of confusion, is that it doesn't, it's not saying that we gain his love through obedience and through the commandments. It's saying that when we have the Spirit dwelling in us and that we are those that Jesus has brought together because that is what has been granted to Jesus by the power of God, that we have been drawn to him what it will look like to be those who are glorifying him are those who are living according to his law, who are pointing back to the glory and the righteousness and the holiness and the love of the Father. So just real quickly, because I don't want to take the time to read all these passages, but I, I hope maybe it will give you an appetite to go back and read these passages. I want to point out some things that Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. In chapter 15, verse 26, he says that he's going to send the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Now, this has been a, a particular passage and verse that's been debated by the church for a long time. Because if you notice in the Nicene Creed that we read today that it says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. 
There's actually been arguments in division in the church in very significant ways about that particular statement. But it's an important thing for us to understand when we consider the nature of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit and that he also proceeds, comes forth from the Father, that the Father and the Son is where the Holy Spirit is coming from. And it makes you understand the occupation and the purpose of the Holy Spirit, which helps us to understand what our occupation and purpose is on glorifying and pointing constantly back to the Father and into the Son. Because if the Spirit dwells in us, that will be our agenda, is to bring forth the glory in which he proceeds, which is the Father and the Son. He is under the authority of the Father in Jesus Christ. That is something that we don't think a lot about as we should when we consider the nature of the Trinity, is that though they are one, and though they are equal, and though there's no way I can possibly explain to you in any full way the, the nature of the Trinity, we do know that there is this service of submission as the Son is in submission to the Father and the Spirit is in submission to the Father and the Son. We see in verse 15, 26 and 27 that, that the Spirit will bear witness about Jesus and then he says, and the disciples will also bear witness. Again, this is important for us to understand the nature of the Holy Spirit so we can understand the nature of the church. What is going to be the point and purpose of the church that Jesus is calling together, but to primarily to be witness about the Son? In chapter 16, verse 7, it says, we are in an advantage to have the Holy Spirit rather than to have the continual physical presence of Jesus in this age. I've mentioned before how this is just, it continues to blow my mind, but it makes sense when we think about the power of the Holy Spirit, when we think about the power of the Word by the Holy Spirit, that its usefulness to us or our benefit in its power and its growth and its transformative power that we need the Holy Spirit, that Jesus himself is wanting to comfort his disciples and therefore comforting us also, that what he has given us with the Holy Spirit is to a, such of an advantage that it is a more potent advantage than actually having Jesus being right before them in the flesh as he would be in this age. Now, I'm not saying that being with Jesus in eternity is not going to be a, an advantage. I'm not saying that, but for some reason, Jesus is saying for that particular time, in this particular time for us, that it is more advantageous for us to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us as Jesus is proclaiming according to the name of his Father. So that means that today, that what we have access to in and through his word, in and through his spirit, that's being manifested according to his will in the church is a tremendously powerful and assuring thing. In verse 16, 8 through 10, he talks about how the spirit is going to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. 
This is a very important part for us to understand when we consider the nature of the church, that as we are proclaiming his truth, we are convicting one another, but we're also convicting those in a judgment way who do not believe. This is important for us to understand that we are, through the proclamation of Jesus Christ and who he is and about his authority and about his word and law, that our presence in the world is judging the world. Not because of our righteousness in of ourselves, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we are in a position of judging the world. We are here to proclaim to others how they have fallen short before the Lord, even those who will not believe. But it is also to those who will come to believe through grace and through the proclamation of his word and the work of his spirit. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that he's talking about amongst those in the church. He's saying, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he not dare to go to the law before Does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? We are being admonished by Paul to understand that the benefit of what we have in our knowledge and in our communion with God, that we have this calling by the Holy Spirit to proclaim God's truth in such a way that we are judging the world. And that it is foolish for us that when we are having a dispute amongst brethren, that we would go to the world in the wisdom of the world, which is foolishness to try to help our disputes, that we have been entrusted by the wonderful word of God. We have been given the wonderful power of the spirit and the wonderful calling to do the very thing that Jesus said is going to be the occupation of the Holy Spirit. We see in verse 16, 13, that he is truth, that the spirit is truth. And this is why it is such a necessity for the church to be a beacon of the truth, that if the spirit is dwelling amongst the church, we will be a beacon of truth to all, to one another and to the world. And he will be a guide to God, to Christ's disciples and to all truth. He is our teacher He is the one who is empowering us to be able to to believe when our eyes and our hearts and our minds and our souls, because of the curse of sin, have the nature of not wanting to believe. He is the Lord and giver of life. He will speak and declare what Jesus speaks, and he will glorify Jesus in doing so. So we see that Jesus says these things to us for a purpose in preparing us as we are the church. In chapter 16, 1, Jesus says that he says these things so that we do not fall away. That they are powerful words that are purposeful for us to be guarded from falling into 
sin. So it is imperative that we proclaim the word to one another, to proclaim Jesus's words, because he says he says these things to us so that we do not fall away. And if we believe that Jesus is powerful, or if we're trying to hope in that power, that is the thing that we can have confidence in, that it is his words that will help us not fall away. In chapter 16, verses two through three, he talks about that the disciples will be in conflict with those who do not know the Father and Jesus. And we see this in the prayer as he is very clearly distinguishing to us that we are not of this world. And the reason why we are not of this world is because he is not of this world. And what he is talking about, he's talking about the people. Now this earth and this world belong to him and he is redeeming that and he's gonna continue to redeem it and to bring it into full redemption and perfection once again. But those of the ruler of the world, which is Satan and sin and death, we are no longer to be identified with that. And so that we see very clearly by the proclamation of Christ that we should be in conflict with the world. When we look at the things that the world is proclaiming, and when we look at the things that the world is proclaiming in their own wisdom, and if we're trying our best to make sure that we are in sync with them, we're on the wrong track. It should be very clear to the world that we are in opposition to them. They have reason to fear the church, the true church, because they will fear the true God. They will hate you if they hate Jesus. If they hate Jesus and they don't hate you, it's likely because we are not doing the things that we were called to do. Jesus says that he will that we will experience sorrow because of the cross, but we will find joy in the resurrection. And that joy will be everlasting. He was proclaiming it to the disciples then as a what was going to happen, but he is also still proclaiming it to us that we should experience sorrow when we think about the weight of our sin. But he proclaims in that that there is a joy of his return that will be everlasting. And he says that it will not be able to be taken away from you. We should, as we are living out the spirit, we should be those who are expressing to one another both our sorrow for sin and the need for the crucifixion, but that we should have very potent amongst us the joy of our salvation in the resurrection of our Lord. Do people know you for that? Do people know you because they see in you through your words and your actions and in your life that you have both a proclamation of a sorrow for your sin, but an overwhelming proclamation of a joy and hope in the resurrected Lord. In chapter 16, verse 27, it says, we are loved by the Father because we have believed that Jesus is of the Father. This understanding of what is going on with the Trinity and the love that they have and the relationship that they have 
is also a part of how we enter into that relationship. That knowledge and that belief is a component of our experience and participation in that love, according to Jesus' words. And then he reiterates again, saying, I say these things in verse 33 of chapter 16, that we may have peace. That he is proclaiming these things, that these things about what is to come and what has come and what is continuing to come through his church should bring us a true peace. His words are more than a bomb to us, but it is what instills in us a character of peace and hope. Jesus tells them there in chapter 16 that he is going to defeat death and return. We'll have sorrow than joy, and then he proclaims, I have overcome the world. Jonathan this morning in our time of prayer was praying that the Spirit would overcome the hearts and minds of our children. Jonathan's prayer, I can say fully amen to, because I know by the power of God's word, by Jesus' own prayer, that Jesus will bring to himself those who are his because he has overcome the world. So as we go into this particular prayer, if you go back and read those particular chapters, you can understand all these things that he is saying as he's talking very heavily about how he desires and he is praying for one. There's five things, if you're taking notes. There are five things that he's praying for in 17 in light of what he's already proclaiming is going to happen by the power of his word, by the power of the spirit, is one that we would have unity with him. That is the driving factor by the name that we have as this particular congregation is that we are in communion. It's not just the act that we will do here in a moment after the preaching, but that we are in communion with God. And that is because that is a promise and proclamation of Jesus Christ that we would be unified to them and to one another. Two, he is praying for his glory. He is proclaiming that he has glorified his father and he is proclaiming that he desires to be glorified even more, to have the glory that he had before he came, before the world even existed. And he is praying that that glory would be in us and that we would see it in him. That is a promise. God will get his glory through his church. Now that can be a very, very difficult thing to convince people of. I was about to ask you, what do you think of? And I've probably asked you this before. What do you think of when, so what is, what do you think of the, and what do you think the world thinks of when they think about the church? My fear is that a lot of times people think scandal, abuse, confusion, pharisaicalism, all kinds of things. But God, through the power of his son and the work of his Holy Spirit, has proclaimed that he will, and he has. It's only a lie of Satan that we continue to dwell upon the sins of those 
who proclaim to be in the church. But he is bringing about his glory and he will continue to bring about the fullness of his glory because he said so. And so we should long for that. We should look for that in what is being proclaimed in the Acts of the Apostles. And we should look for that when we look at church history. We should look at that when we look at the lives of one another. And it should draw us to thanksgiving. And we should look forward to that in one another. The reason why we should dwell upon the high priestly prayer is not to just see what power is behind the promises of Jesus, but it should also teach us what we should be praying for. Do you pray for one another that Jesus will be glorified in and through you before the world? Do you pray for one another that they may be one with one another and with the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost? Do you pray for one another that they would know the word? I will ask you this one question, and this is a pop quiz on what we just read when we read chapter 17. What is the nature of eternal life according to chapter 17? What's that? To know God. When we think about evangelism, when we think about going out and telling people the gospel, we should, and it should be on the forefront of our mind that we're thinking about eternal life. But look at our common songs, maybe country songs particularly, or songs about heaven. Is that what we dwell on when we think about eternal life? If we have already been given this promise of eternal life, and if Jesus says, he says very clearly, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That the nature of eternal life has more to do with us knowing him and being in him to participate in the enjoyment and experience in life of the love of the father that he has for his son. And that is what is guaranteed. And so that should be our hope. That should be a part of our occupation. That when we think about the Great Commission, it's to do what Jesus actually told us to do, which is to teach one another about who God is. The nature of the Holy Spirit is to be proclaiming the eternal life, which is about the knowledge of God. So therefore, the church's nature should be to disciple People in knowing who God is. It's not to take a cue from the world on what is considered to be kindness and goodness, but to be about pointing people to the glory of Jesus Christ 
in the Father. Because it is here that as we look through chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, that Jesus is leading up to and proclaiming and promising this thing that we like to say, but we don't always understand, is that we, he is actually ultimately praying that we enjoy the love of the Father. But a lot of times we take from the world, whom we're not supposed to be associated with, what love is. The only love that God has promised, which is ultimate love, is that we would have the love of the Father, and therefore we will have the joy of the Father. A lot of people may be thinking about this sermon and thinking about this particular passage and saying, I don't have a lot of joy. And I think that the, the number one culprit for that is that we're still listening to the world to teach us what love is. And when that love does not deliver true peace, when that love is not a true protection, then we are not experiencing the fulfillment of the promises of the Lord's joy. Our prayer should be that we would begin to understand who he is so that we may be able to understand what love is. And when we are living in that life, Jesus promises that there will be true joy. We also have this constant continuation that the work of the Holy Spirit and through the promises of Jesus' prayer, that our mission is for other people to know the Father and the Son. And so because he has prayed that that would happen, that will happen amongst his church. And so our occupation and our interests and our focus and our meditations and our prayers as we mimic our brother and king and savior and Lord in prayer is that we would be proclaiming to people who the father and the son are. And then to close this last verse, which brings it all together, says, I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We have the promise of God's love. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit. We have the promise of unity with him and with one another. It may be difficult for us to believe when we see the division, when we see the lack of joy, but do not assume that Jesus' words have fallen short. As we go into the book of Acts, you will see that he is bringing about the fulfillment of his very promises. And I pray that it will be not just an encouragement to you, but that it would be a provocation to you that you want to be a part of that church. It should be a provocation to us as communion fellowship that we want to be a part of that church. It could be presumptive of us to say we are Christ church because of our the things that we hold to, we hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith, we hold to 
this particular thing in the scriptures. We have the Bible. We do the preaching of the word. We do the sacraments. But there are a lot of people who are doing those kind of things. Jennifer and I, when we were in Savannah, we go and we see all these historic church buildings. And they have written on their walls and written on their original documents that they hold to the same things that we hold to in many ways. But we see, as we look at the history, a faltering and a wavering of these particular congregations. And we also, thankfully, saw an example of what I believe is a continuation of faithfulness. It's not going to be based upon our name or this particular organization of these particular peoples that are going to sustain us. And so therefore, we may falter and we may be already faltering in many ways that would make it seem like Jesus' prayer did not come to fruition. But do not let Satan deceive you to believe that he is bringing about his church. And so our provocation in prayer is that we should ask the Lord to do the very things that he said he was going to do in us. He says that if we ask anything in his name, he will deliver. The problem is, I don't think we are asking. Often the church is not asking the things that are of his name. So let this study in Acts be that we would learn what is in his name and that we would pray for it, that we would celebrate it in praise and in joy and that we would do it, that we would do the things that he told us to do. Jesus gives us the proclamation that we are in him through our baptism, that we are participating in his baptism by our participation in him and in his body. And then he also gives us the table in that we are a part of him by taking on him, eating his body and his blood. The nature of the table is communion. It is fellowship. It is oneness. As we look at the church and as we look at the promises of Jesus, look at this table and be reminded of the nature of our God and the love that he has for us, that he invites us and he calls us through repentance and faith, through the work of Jesus Christ, to be in fellowship with him. So let us go to the table with thanksgiving. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father,